The following is a recording of the Thomas Paine Unitarian Universalist Fellowship. We are located in Collegeville, Pennsylvania. We are also located on the web at www.tpuuf.org. Please come visit us. Marching up to freedom land. 
Good morning, and welcome to Thomas Paine Unitarian Universalist Fellowship. We're located in Collegeville, Pennsylvania, but on this snowy, frigid morning, thanks to the magic of the internet and Zoom and our wonderful tech team, we are as close as your home. We're a Unitarian Universalist congregation dedicated to nurturing the spirit and transforming the world. I'm Preston Lutweiler, past president of the Board of Trustees, and I want to personally welcome you this morning. Wherever you are in your life journey, wherever you are in your spiritual journey, where, whomever you love, whatever your gender identity or expression, we welcome you into our circle of compassion and caring. The Soul Matters theme for January is the gift of liberating love. And one of the greatest champions of that gift in my lifetime has been the Reverend Dr. Martin Luther King. Our sermon today by the Reverend Dr. Aidson Wright Riggins III is titled Refusing to Quietly Quit on King and Some Other Important Things. Reverend King once observed that nothing in the world is more dangerous than sincere ignorance and conscientious stupidity. The quotation may describe the times in which we find ourselves. We UUs have prided ourselves in our long history of fighting sincere ignorance and conscientious stupidity, as well as all forms of social injustice. James Reeb was a UU minister who became a martyr for the cause of racial injustice, uh, uh, for the cause of racial justice and voting rights in the 60s. But is our society today, with our na national holiday commemorating Martin Luther King's birthday and the multiple uh, multitude of services, service projects and the compulsory political statements from everyone from Kamala Harris to Lauren Boebert, collectively quietly quitting on King? Are we UUs guilty of quietly quitting? The UUA, our parent denominational organization, in a moment of harsh introspection, has called us a racist, white supremacist religion, or at least not sufficiently anti-racist. This has been the impetus for the Article II Commission that wants to rewrite our principles. Is this a fair assessment? And will changing Article II of our bylaw, bylaws matter if our society is overtaken by sincere ignorance and conscientious stupidity. Now I'm going to light our chalice with words from the Flames of Love by Reverend Kimmy Floyd Reich. We light the flame of commitment to stand with and work to create change until all know that they are beloved. We light the flame of survival grateful for our lives and remembering in those, remembering in love those lost along the road. We light the flame of change, committing to recenter toward love in hearts, in minds, in our world. We light the flame of hope, loving each other, building community, even when it is uncomfortable. We light the flame of knowledge, following the path of justice, justice that is love embodied. We light the flame as a people committed. We are survivors. 
we will change the world until no one lives without hope, until no one lives without justice. We light this flame and pledge that in love, with love, and through love, all things are possible. And now I will light the peace lamp. <clears throat> and if you'll repeat the words in the response that are on the slide, may peace be with us. Our gathering song today is hymn number 121, We'll Build a Land, performed by Mo Mack and John and Cynthia Bowling. The music is by Carolyn McDade. The original lyrics were by Barbara Zanotti, but Mo Mack has revised a few words and added a verse. And I like this version better. The words will appear on your screen. Feel free to sing along. And though this is a rather white UU hymn, the message is one of commitment to building a land where, in the words of the song, justice rolls down like water and peace like an ever-flowing stream. A phrase echoed in a quote by King, until justice rolls down like waters and righteousness a mighty stream. captives go free where the oil of gladness dissolves all mourning we'll build a promised land that can be come build a land where sisters and brothers filled with the spirit may then create peace where justice shall roll down like waters and peace like an Share this land, let's build it right here. 
Good morning, everyone. I'm Linda Weaver, the treasurer here at Thomas Paine UU Fellowship. And I'm going to read a book today called Martin's Big Words by Doreen Rappaport. But I wanted to read, before we actually get into the text of the book, I wanted to read the author's note that she wrote in the beginning of the book that you're not going to see a slide of. And here's what Doreen Rappaport wrote. I was introduced to the philosophy, philosophy of nonviolence as a high school student in 1955 during the Montgomery bus boycott and as a teacher during the Southern sit-ins of the 1960s. The courage and determination of the Southern black Americans who confronted violence with nonviolence transformed my life and ideas. I went to the March on Washington in 1963 to support this inspirational movement. I went South to teach in a Mississippi Freedom School during the summer of 1965. In Mississippi, I saw firsthand the fragility of being black in white America. And now let's begin the book, Martin's Big Words. Everywhere in Martin's hometown, he saw the signs white only. His mother said those, these signs were in all Southern cities and towns in the United States. Every time Martin read the words, he felt bad until he remembered what his mother told him. You are as good as anyone. In church, Martin sang hymns. He read from the Bible. He listened to his father preach. These words made him feel good. When I grow up, I'm going to get big words too. Martin grew up. He became a minister like his father and he used the big words he had heard as a child from his parents and from the Bible. Everyone can be great. He studied the teachings of Mahatma Gandhi. He learned how the Indian nation won freedom without ever firing a gun. Martin said love when others said hate. Hate cannot drive out hate. Only love can do that. He said together when others said separate. He said peace when others said war. Sooner or later, all the people of the world will have to discover a way to live together. In 1955, on a cold December day in Montgomery, Alabama, Rosa Barks was coming home from work. A white man told her to get up from her seat on the bus so he could sit. She said no and was arrested. Montgomery's black citizens learned of her arrest. It made them angry. They decided not to ride the buses until they could sit anywhere they wanted. For 381 days, they walked to work and school and church. They walked in rain and cold and in blistering heat. Martin walked with them and talked with them and sang with them and prayed with them until the white city leaders had to agree they could sit anywhere they wanted. When history books are written, someone will say there lived black people who had the courage to stand up for their rights. In the next 10 years, Black Americans all over the South protected, 
pro, I'm sorry, protested for equal rights. Martin walked with them and talked with them and sang with them and prayed with them while ministers told them to stop. Mayors and governors and police chiefs and judges ordered them to stop, but they kept on marching. Wait. For years, I have heard the word wait. We have waited more than 340 years for our rights. They were jailed and beaten and murdered, but they kept on marching. Some Black Americans wanted to fight back with their fists. Martin convinced them not to by reminding them of the power of love. Love is the key to the problems of the world. Many white Southerners hated and feared Martin's words. A few threatened to kill him and his family. His house was bombed, his brother's house was bombed, but he refused to stop. Remember, if I am stopped, this movement will not be stopped because God is with this movement. The marches continued. More and more Americans listened to Martin's words. He shared his dreams and filled them with hope. I have a dream that one day in Alabama, little black boys and black girls will join hands with little white boys and white girls as sisters and brothers. After 10 years of protests, the lawmakers in Washington voted to end segregation. The white only signs in the South came down. Dr. Martin Luther King Jr. cared about all Americans. He cared about people all over the world and people all over the world admired him. In 1964, he won the Nobel Peace Prize. He won it because he taught others to fight with words, not fists. Martin went wherever people needed help. In April 1968, he went to Memphis, Tennessee. He went to help garbage collectors who were on strike. He walked with them and talked with them and sang with them and prayed with them. On the second day there, he was shot. He died. His big words are alive for us today. Freedom, peace, together, I have a dream and love. Thank you, Linda. The Reverend Aidson Wright Riggins III has given sermons at our fellowship before. He's an inspiring preacher. He's also the mayor of Collegeville. At one time, he served as director of peace and justice ministries for the Southern Christian Leadership Conference of Greater Los Angeles. He is a consequential man. It's been 40 years since federal legislation was passed to make the Reverend Dr. Martin Luther King Jr.'s birthday a federal holiday. And the Reverend Dr. Aidson Wright Riggins will reflect on how we have been quietly quitting on King's vision, politically, economically, and spiritually, since at least 1966, and suggest ways we might begin walking King's talk again. Perhaps UUs can play a vital role in this process as they review and affirm essential values and sources for the days ahead. 
we are truly honored to have Reverend Ace in our pulpit today. Good morning. Let me, uh, first of all, thank you so very much for um, inviting me to share in this fellowship. Uh, I don't take it lightly that I've been invited several times before and you continue to do so. And for that, I am um, thankful and so very, very uh, grateful for uh, your hospitality. I also just really wanna thank uh, Thomas Paine for uh, being uh, that progressive voice uh, in our community. Uh, Collegeville is a great place to come home to and this greater area of Montgomery County is a greater place, a good place to come on to because of your work and your witness. And I also just wanted to uh, extend a word of greeting and thanksgiving for uh, the several friends and colleagues I see and relatives that I see uh, online, your names, your faces, uh, your presence, uh, members of the NAACP I know as well, uh, where I serve as Director of uh, Political Affairs are online as well. So thank you uh, for, for being a part of, of this uh, service today at Thomas Paine UU Fellowship. Um, I'm also aware that, uh, that there are theological and cultural differences uh, between uh, many of us. Uh, I, as a Black Baptist minister, uh, many of you of, 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 of uh, the UU a fellowship, some of faith and some of no faith. And I'm also aware that uh, we also mark sermonic time differently. Uh, so I'm asking you to be uh, open and gracious with me as I try to walk uh, this line uh, between uh, these cultures. So with that in mind, uh, let, let's turn now to uh, uh, today's uh, topic or message, uh, refusing uh, to quietly quit on King and some other important things. Would you just uh, pray with me for a moment? Eternal one, if you do not speak, there's nothing to be said. Stream of mercy, if you do not walk with us, there is no place that we can go. Bound us hard, if you do not anoint us, we are but a clanging gong or clashing symbol, just noise. So abide with us, for we are the work of your hands, the unfolding of your breath, and the focus of your love. We are open and waiting. Amen. If I were to take a text, which is uh, our custom and the Baptistic expression in the African-American tradition, it would be a text that, uh, is found in the narrative of Luke uh, there in that sixth chapter. Uh, he's describing a scene in which uh, people are clamoring uh, to get next to Jesus. Uh, Jesus has been healing and teaching and, and in such a way he had gone from obscurity to this Taylor Swift-like popularity there in Tyre and Sidon. And everybody wanted to get a piece of him. Everybody wanted to be around him. And there is, he was surrounded by the crowd. Suddenly Jesus turns to them and he says words like this. Why? Why do you call me Lord, Lord? 
and do not do what I tell you to do. Man. <laughs> well, Martin King was no Jesus, but they share at least one thing in common. They are both often quoted, but they are both too seldom followed. Often quoted, often lauded, but too seldom followed. Uh, we admire Dr. King, uh, but do we, we adhere to his admonitions? We, we celebrate King, but do we comprehend his vision? We are enthralled by his oratory, but do we engage, do we enlist, do we insist on his agenda? Uh, one of my mentors used to say, and Pamela Lee Davis, who's online, would appreciate this, Dr. Massey would say, people aren't always talking about what they're really talking about. At this time of year, I sometimes wonder if King, if people who like King so much, the King who had made strides toward freedom, the King who had moved us to quote chaos and community would really like him. Let me see if I can let me see if I can say this a slightly different way. I remember one of the most uh, iconic award programs, Oscar award programs, which occurred almost 40 years ago. You may remember Sally Field was receiving her second Oscar for her role in Places of the Heart. And she gave one of the most memorable acceptance speeches ever. It was a speech that has been both deeply admired for its sincerity, as well as parod parodied for its overly excessiveness. Do you remember what she said? Just in case you don't, let's watch this 30 second clip. You like me, you really like me. 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 Like me, you really like me. Recently, I've learned that is not what Sally Field actually said. Let's take a look at the original clip and listen to what she did say. I owe a lot to my family for holding me together and loving me and having patience with this obsession of me. But I want to say thank you to you. I haven't had an orthodox career. And I've wanted more than anything to have your respect. The first time I didn't feel it, but this time I feel it. And I can't deny the fact that you like me right now. You like me. You like me right now. You like me. When this season rolls around, I quite often wonder about America's alleged love fee fest with Dr. Martin Luther King. 
At the Oscars, Sally Field made an exuberant exclamation. You like me. Right now, you like me. Are we only liking King in January and maybe during Black History Month? Are we liking the preacher who had a dream while simultaneously disdaining the prophet who disturbs our illusions about these yet to be United States of America? Are we talking about King but not walking with King? My brothers and sisters, can we admit to ourselves, if not to anyone else, that Dr. King was not a particularly popular figure for the 39 years that he walked planet Earth? King has been safely dead for almost 57 years now. And during that time, we have built monuments to his glory and we sung hosannas to his name. He has become America's most convenient hero with at least 955 streets and 22,000 census blocks named after him. Yes, he has a federal holiday. Yes, he has a 30-foot high national monument that sits on the banks of the Potomac next to the Washington National Mall. And yes, we all know the chorus to Stevie Wonder's famous happy birthday to you, Dr. Martin Luther King, recorded almost 45 years ago. But truth be told, many of us did not really like him when he was alive, and then some of us have yet to get past the myth of Martin and meet the man who made and makes such demands on America and our world. When King was killed in 1968, he had a public disapproval rating of nearly 75%. And my friends, his haters were not just segregationist white folks from the Deep South. Although many of us perceive the Black church today as the forefront of the fight for racial justice in the 1950s and the 1960s, devout Christians fiercely disagreed, devout Black Christians severely, fiercely disagreed about whether or not their churches should or would get involved. While the local church of my youth did embrace King and welcomed his words and, and wisdom, the church just at a corner to us, vilified King. To them, he was pushing too fast. King was too uppity. Uh, he was putting our community at risk. The pastor and the members there feared that if they opened their doors and their hearts to them, they might lose their valuable tax exemption or perhaps have their building burned or lose their jobs. Theologically, they were in conflict with King because they believed that the church's primary duty was to bring people into a personal relationship with Jesus and to be concerned with the affairs of this world would be a distraction. Most of my skin folks my skin folks, even those who agreed with King over the plight of Blacks in America, fell out with King 
over the Vietnam War. They felt that he was overreaching, that he was out of his lane. They critiqued him as unpatriotic. We had fought too hard during World War II. We had fought too hard during the Korean War. We had spilled too much blood. We had been trying to prove ourselves to America. And don't you know, King, that to speak out against this war makes us seem unworthy to be American? And then there were white folks. And thank God for moderate and liberal white folks. Yeah, they, they marched with King across the James Pettus Bridge in Selma. They showed up in droves at the March on Washington in 1963. They applauded as loud as my Aunt Jane when he proclaimed, I have a dream that one day my, our children will be judged by the content of their character rather than the color of their skin. But these same white allies in the movement began to quietly quit on King when he made it plain that in his words, he had abandoned the incremental approach to social change for civil rights, for the civil rights protest days in favor of pursuing a reconstruction of the entire society, a revolution of values, one which would look uneasily on the glaring contrast of poverty and wealth with righteous indignation. For many of my white friends, it was one thing to talk about desegregating a lunch counter in Alabama and quite another thing to talk about resisting redlining in Los Angeles or Chicago or the suburbs of Philadelphia. It was one thing to talk about being able to get a hamburger and a cup of coffee at Woolworths in Greenville, North Carolina, and quite another thing to make a decent wage or to be able to afford a burger and fries in Limerick or Royalsford or Conshohocken. Claiborne Carson, the director of the King Institute at Stanford said, King was not searching for popularity. What he was trying to put forward was what he thought was the right course of action. In other words, King would not have cared about Facebook likes and hearts and smiling emojis. On Facebook, if he did use that medium, he would use it to advance the message of the movement. King couldn't get 75% approval rating. He's getting 90% approval now. I can't get 50% approval rating in my own marriage and with my family. From my perspective, this posthumously soaring popularity is due to carefully crafted narratives composed by pundits on both sides of the partisan divide who have hollowed out his vision so that they might lay claim to the mantle of King without pursuing the radical revolution of values that he prescribed. Both the right and the left paint him as primarily focused on fighting valiantly against vicious inflammatory racist bigots, using the tool of brilliant oratory to retrieve a gene of people getting along 
and tolerating each other in the deep south. But I believe we quietly quit on King when we paint him as a man who was only trying to make a bad part of the country better rather than to join him in the work of awakening the, all the whole of America from its nightmarish waltz with death-dealing white supremacy, soul-crushing white wealth supremacy, and world-ending war supremacy. These three evils, racism, poverty, militarism, remain today stubbornly entrenched and tragically increased. Can't you hear him today? Why do you call me king, king? But yet you do not act on the things that I stood for. Now, I'm, I'm not here to beat up on anybody, <laughs> least of all myself. But I wanna encourage you, my friends, to refuse to quietly quit on King. Now was not the time for detente in which communities, both black and white, rest upon past laurels. The beloved King Week is not intended to be just a celebration and a commemoration. King Week is not just a time for us to sing Kumbaya and pretend that we don't see color. This week ought to be a week of reckoning. King Week should be more like an annual physical exam or a wellness checkup. Approaching it ought to fill us with, fill us with a low level sense of anxiety. That, that anxiety that I feel every October when I go to see my own personal physician. In October, I wanna make sure that my cholesterol levels are not as high as they were last year. I wanna stop eating Pringles and chocolate chip cookies in brown August so that I don't crash that scale when I step on it in Dr. Hoffman's office. I'm a little anxious about my blood work. Is my sugar too high? Will I have to take an X-ray and see, revealed, see what is revealed there beneath the surface of my skin? Is there some cancer lurking? Is there something about my heart that is just not? King Week ought to shake America up a bit and cause it to feel a bit uncomfortable, like we ought to get our house in order, huh? like some is coming over for company, like we ought to enroll in a fitness program. King, King, King would ask us, how, how, how are we doing with regards to white supremacy and racism? King might remind us that while racism is a social construct, it is also a way in which we socially order human beings based upon the color of their skin while we value whiteness over blackness and brownness or indigenous people's lives. He would remind us that racism played out systemically in the real world is, is, a, is a place where, 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 where that produces gaps in length of lives and in 
quality of lives. Uh, for instance, these gaps mean that, uh, that I, as an African-American man, statistically speaking, I have already reached my projected expiration date on this planet two years ago. While a number of my friends and colleagues in service today are the same chronological age that I am, they have a projected shelf life for another six years beyond mine, simply because they were born white. Racism means differences in, in health and health care. Do you know that black women with a master's, who have master's and doctoral degrees have a higher mortality rate during childbirth than white girls who have high school and GED degrees? Racism means significant gaps in wealth and income and ed education. Racism means widening gaps between rates of incarceration. If I were to ask us, what is the closest predominantly black populated community to Thomas Paine UU Fellowship? Many of us would almost automatically point to Norristown or to Pottstown, but I would suggest to you that it is the Phoenix State Correctional Institution, better known as Greaterford Prison, right next door, yet invisible to so many of us. How is it possible that I can sometimes go all day right here in Collegeville without seeing anybody in my family who looks like me? And yet the prison in our zip code is overwhelmingly populated by people of color. King said it this way, we aren't engaged in any negative protests and any negative arguments with anybody. We are saying that we are determined to be human. We are determined to be people. We are saying that we are God's children and we don't have to live like we are forced to live. Refusing to quit on King means joining with those who refuse to give up the fight to dismantle racism and white supremacy. Then we remember King criticized wealth supremacy and capital bias. You see, wealth, wealth supremacy is, is where, we, where, where we value things over people. Wealth supremacy is where we insist that those who have, have a right to accumulate and maintain even more for the sake of prestige and power and privileges. And the aim of wealth supremacy is that those on top remain on top. There's a bias towards those who have. There is a capital bias in this system. But Martin King said, we delude ourselves into believing the myth that capitalism grew and prospered out of the Protestant ethic and hard work and sacrifice. We ignore the fact that capitalism was built on the backs of exploitation and the suffering of enslaved black people and continues to thrive on the exploitation of the poor, continues to survive and thrive on the exploitation of the poor, both black 
and white. What King said in 1966 is still true today. Someone has been profiting from the low wages of Negroes, he said. Distressed living standards for Negroes are a structural part of the economy. Certain industries are based upon the supply of low wage, unskilled and immobile non-white labor, hand assembly factories, hospitals, service industries, housework, agricultural operations, using itinerant labor. All of these would suffer shock, if not disaster, he said, if the federal minimum wage were significantly raised. A hardening of opposition to the satisfaction of Negro needs must be anticipated as the movement presses against financial privilege. The king wasn't just talking about black people. He went on to say, our nation is now so rich, so productive that the continuation of perceived poverty, persistent poverty is incendiary because the poor cannot rationalize their deprivation. We have yet to confront and solve the international problems created by our wealth in a world largely hungry and miserable. I'm talking now about the 1%. How is it? that the 1% own more than the bottom 50%. How is it that some are allowed to accumulate more and more and more? And here in Montgomery County, we've got people who are freezing to death on the streets. There's something wrong. Refusing to quit on King means that we must move past the thingification of persons and valuing property more than we do human beings. Let me share the last thing here. The last core conviction of King I wanna to point to is grounded in nonviolence and solidarity with suffering people. King's critique of militarism and war. I believe that many of you who are Unitarian Universalists can relate to King where King was coming from. At least four of the seven UU principles resonate with King's core Christian convictions. The first two and the concluding two. You remember those? The first principle, the inherent worth and dignity of every person. The second principle, justice, equity, compassion in human relations. And then sandwiched between those a couple more, but then the sixth and the seventh principle, the goal of world community with peace, liberty and justice for all and respect for the interdependent web of all existence of which we are part. Brothers and sisters, one year to the day before King was assassinated on the balcony of the Lorraine Motel in Nashville in 1968, he spoke at Riverside Church and called the attention to America's war in Vietnam. This is what he said speaking about the children. He said, they watch as we poison their water. He's speaking about Vietnamese children. They watch as we poison their water, as we kill a million acres of their crops. They must weep as bulldozers roar through their areas, preparing to destroy precious trees. They wander into hospitals with at least 20 casualties from American firepower for one Viet Cong afflicted injury. 
If Martin Luther King Jr. had lived to see his 95th birthday this past Monday, I wonder if we would have invited him to preach here or anywhere. I wonder, like my colleague Jackie Lewis in New York, who wondered if he would step into the pulpit and conjure images of American-made bulldozers destroying historic Palestinian olive groves, flattening of neighborhoods, and the staggering truth that 20 people in Gaza have now been killed for every Israeli who died on October 7th. No doubt the heart of this prophet king would have been broken by the horrific violence committed by Hamas against Israel citizens, civilians as well. He would have been aghast at those arguments that some polls using decades of apartheid to justify rape and murder. King himself came from a people who had lived under the brutalizing heels of structural violence and segregation, the legacy of lynching and the dehumanizing laws of limited human freedom. But he believed with every fiber of his being that the means of revolution were just as important as the freedom he demanded. It is not enough, he said, we must not wage war. It is necessary to love peace and sacrifice for. We must concentrate not merely on the negative expulsion of war, but on the positive affirmation of peace. Now, by now, you're probably hoping that I've never been invited to preach here. Because up until today, you liked King. But getting to know him a little better, you're not so sure. For, for others, you may be more committed now to walking the walk rather than just talking the talk. And maybe instead of militarism and violence, you're committed to strive for an alternative global security system rooted in global and a global peace economy. Maybe rather than racism, you're devoted to strive for a decolonized future rooted in the ethos of pluriversity, diversity, equity, inclusion. Perhaps instead of poverty, you're devoted to strive for economic democracy and the protection of the common good. Perhaps as King would have hoped for us, we can move from despair to beloved community. Despite what others may have parodied, Sally Field indeed said, right now, you like me. I wanna encourage you to like the real King right now. It was King who said, it is always the right time to do the right thing. I want to encourage you to not quietly quit on King because King refused to quit on us. Despite never making any money, despite having his home bombed, despite living constantly under the threat of death, despite having his friends forsake him, despite having lost his life at 39 years old, he never quit on us. Right now, let us like him.
right now. It is time to do the right thing. Let us be those who refuse to quietly quit on King. Amen. Amen. Thank you. Thank you so much, um, Reverend Ace, for those powerful words. And, you know, I hear your words echoing Kings more closely than anybody that I've ever heard. So I, th I think I'm proud that we've invited you to preach today. And I think to answer your question, I think we would have invited King to preach if he was available. So thank you. Now we've come to the portion of our service that we call Matters of the Heart, where we hear from those of you who may wish to speak. As you gather your thoughts, please listen to a short musical meditation by Isaac Strader, after which John Sayre will instruct everyone in raising your hand on Zoom to be recognized to speak. We have come to the end of Matters of the Heart. We'll bring this time of sharing to a close. We're going to sing Spirit of Life. The uh, lyrics will show up on the screen here in just a second. And uh, it'll be accompanied by our very own Christine Perry. Hold me close. 
And now we'll have our closing song, which is We Shall Not Be Moved. It's performed by Mavis Staples. The words of the spiritual echo, echo several passages in the Old Testament about the strength of a tree planted by a stream. The song began as a spiritual and protest song in the American South in the late 19th century and grew to become a staple of the civil rights movement in the 60s. The introduction by Mavis Staples is moving, so please listen. Back in the day, you know, we were marching with Dr. King and, uh, you know, us youngsters, some of us would take off by ourselves. And we would just march, march all day and sing. After a while, somebody would say, let's get something to eat. <laughs> so we would stop, we'd go in this restaurant. And we sit down. We saw the waitress when she went in the back. And then she wouldn't come back out. Took her a long time to come out. But we sat there. When she came out, she said, y'all get out of here. I'm going to call the police. We just sit there. And when we heard the police coming, we heard the sirens and all, we joined together, made our chain, locked arms, and we began to sing this song. We shall not, we shall not be moved. We shall not, we shall not be moved like a tree that's planted by the water. We shall not be moved. We shall not, we shall not be moved. We shall not we shall not be just like a tree that's planted by the water we shall not be we're fighting for our children we shall not be we're fighting for our children, we shall not be like a tree that's planted by the water. Oh, yeah. We shall not be. Oh, yeah. We, we shall not. We shall not be. Oh, we, we shall not. We shall not be.
One of my favorite quotes from our namesake, Thomas Paine, is we have it in our power to make the world over again. Please keep those words in mind as I close with some other words from Reverend Gretchen Haley about our denomination. Reverend Haley writes, universalism as a religion, as a religious tradition started off as a theological claim about life after death. Our religious forebears asserted that there was no way that an all loving God would damn any of God's own people to eternal punishment and torment. The idea was inconsistent with love in an ultimate sense. Universalism was a claim that whatever destiny any of us is meant for, all of us are meant for. In the 20th century, this afterlife affirmation became instead a claim and a commitment to make about this life, an affirmation that, as Dr. Martin Luther King Jr. has said, we are caught in an inescapable network of mutuality tied in a single garment of destiny. Whatever lines we may consciously or subconsciously seek to draw between us and them, enemy and friend, good or bad, worthy and unworthy, there is no escaping or undoing how interconnected we are, how interdependent. No matter how different or disagreeable, no one is less or more human than any other of us, no one. The outcome of this theological claim is what King described as the beloved community be loved as in fueled by and held together by the promise of love, not just any love, but agape love, whereas other types of love are directed at particular individuals, romantic love or the love of friends. King described agape as the sort of love that makes no distinction between a friend and enemy. It is an overflowing love that is purely spontaneous, unmotivated, groundless, and creative, the love of God operating in the human heart. King went so far as to call it disinterested love because it is the sort of love that doesn't care whether it is loved back. It is the love that will, quote, go to any lengths to restore community. And now I am going to extinguish the chalice with a promise to not quietly quit on Dr. Martin Luther King Jr. and to spread the gift of liberating love. We extinguish this chalice, but not the light of hope and the fire of commitment that we will carry with us into the world. <laughs>